0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR 102.7 FM. or Welcome to the podcast or the radio on demand playback service if you're catching up with us that way. My name's Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined once more by Alexandra Heller-Nicholas and we've got a full cave tonight. It is sensational to have Josh Nelson and Cerise howard Back in the house cave. Good evening.
0: Good evening. (laughs) Good evening. Hello.
1: Hi, (laughs) it's good to have everybody back here. Before we go any further, though, just on behalf of the station, we're having April amnesty now. Now, look, you may have been listening to Triple R for quite a while, and you've never got round to subscribing. Your subscription may have lapsed. It happens to the best of us. You you just forget that that's happened, or you might know one or two friends who perhaps listen to the station and don't pay their dues. So you might want you might want to nudge them in the right direction during April. Triple R is a not-for-profit community broadcasting service, so it's reliant on on the support of our listeners and sponsors to keep the station running every year this is the 40th year for for triple r so your sub- subscriptions are as important as ever for more information on the benefits of a triple r subscription <laughs> or to check out all the prizes you might win or just to subscribe already head over to rr.org.au and follow the links to april amnesty you can also call the station on 9388 nine three double eight um let's get into tonight's show we're going to take a look at the australian documentary sherpa about the relationship between the sherpa people of nepal and the various tour operators who employ them to take people up mount everest we'll also be discussing april and the extraordinary world a french language feature animation set in a steampunk alternate version of 1940s paris but we're going to begin the show by discussing eye in the sky this is a modern war film slash thriller about a joint us and uk military operation where where surveillance and an armed drone are used to identify and monitor a group of terrorists in niobe kenya Now, when the mission objectives change to become a kill mission, the ethics and rationality for doing so are questioned and debated by every level of government and military involved in the operation. Now, given the use of drones in warfare is still relatively new, this is quite possibly the first war film to really engage with how they are used as a central focus of the film. What did you all make of it?
2: Or should I jump in yeah. first? Actually, someone was telling me yesterday there's a, an Ethan Hawke film.
0: Yeah, I'll talk a bit about oh, that. Oh, good,
2: yeah. And it sounded that's, fascinating. That's, but, that's yeah, my
0: point of I reference. I kind of wished I'd, I
2: wished I'd seen that before the show. Um, look, I think this film, it's almost inevitable we're going to talk about ideology and politics in this film, and I think Approaching Eye in the Sky is almost more interesting from that perspective for me than in terms of its entertainment value, because I didn't find it particularly entertaining as a, as a feature film, but I do find it fascinating on a on a political level. And I guess one of the the issues that this film raised for me is in terms of representation, particularly in terms of the the African characters within the film. And I was increasingly aware as the film went on that they didn't actually feel like characters particularly a central uh, trio of characters uh, a family uh, you know a mother father and and a young girl who becomes increasingly important to the to the narrative uh, towards the latter stages of the film and i felt like they were there more as almost props for emotional points for what felt like a quite a western audience and i felt uncomfortable that they weren't actually characters in their own right and in some ways that sort of undid i guess what was to be fair to the film, probably quite a well-meaning political film or, or a film that was trying to set out to be well-meaning in terms of its politics and trying to, I guess, deal with this issue of the dehumanising effects of of uh, drone warfare. But to me, that sort of put me out of the film and I, and I actually felt at certain points that this film feels a little ideologically confused and convoluted and I felt difficult to try and situate where the film was trying to kind of find its its mark, and not in a way that was being deliberately politically ambiguous or dealing with the sophistication and complexity of this issue, but in ways that felt almost ham-fisted, and I think This film is more like a morality play that enters into a sort of, this may seem a little unfair, but farcical territory with the number of obstacles that we continually have kind of breaking the film. And it felt like it was reaching comic proportions at certain points. Almost in some ways the structure of the narrative worked against the identification with some of the characters in terms of that pushing towards a humanising gaze in terms of what was going on.
3: Yeah, there's some really awkward comedy in this film. Oh, it wasn't just me, good. No, it wasn't just you. It, it began with Alan, Alan Rickman, to whom I'm immediately going to feel sympathetic as soon as I see him on screen, not least because he passed recently. and Is this, in fact, his last film? <laughs> He's got a film
1: coming out where he did some voice work, but this is his yeah his final live-action film acting. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. and uh, as a general, uh, his first appearance uh, brings him uh, into a hotel fire, or actually not a hotel, it's probably some, somewhere where very important british people are meeting and his biggest concern at that point in time is about the doll he's buying presumably his daughter and whether it's the right one and it's sort of played for laughs um, and uh I, I know exactly what you mean about the ham-fistedness of the morality play that this film is not least because um without going to spoiler territory the the film's closing credits sequence really lays on thick uh the fate of a particular character central to the moral situation this whole film is concerned with, and that just left a really quite nasty taste in my mouth, actually, because it felt extremely manipulative. The film does have some very difficult questions to grapple with, and it's sort of uh, concerning a a calculus of collateral damage, whether it is better or worse to um, definitely kill somebody innocent um, and perhaps a few other miscellaneous people uh, in a drone attack which will take out some supposedly very nasty people of various nationalities who are supposedly allied and on the team of the people on the same side, for want of a better word, uh, of the people who are going to deploy this drone attack, or whether uh, it is better to not um, uh, take out that a particular innocent and others in that immediate scenario and instead run the risk of a much worse attack uh, in a much more public space where there could be scores of casualties. And yeah, this is difficult stuff and we see it um, go up a chain of command farcically and crossing the the transatlantic borders. In fact, other parts of the world are brought into it but only as a backdrop for the Brits and the Americans to debate what is the right thing to do uh, and no one wanting to actually accept uh, responsibility. And it is kind of played for laughs but it's not actually really very funny. And I think that's partly because they haven't actually made it very funny. It could have been the thick of it style in the loop style very funny it could have been incredibly dark and funny and it just isn't it's sort of flat and kind of awkward
1: I think they were trying to capture the you know, the sickening absurdity of the situation. And that stuff with Alan Rickman at the start was meant to... That, that kind of banality of he's going about his everyday life, buying a gift for his child. And, of course, the significance of a child is going to come into this film in a big way. But I think I'm on a very similar line as both of you. I actually quite enjoyed this. I felt the thriller tension aspect of it, even though there were little moments in the film where I went, uh-oh, to myself, including the very start when they flash up that classic quote, in war, truth is the first casualty. And I just thought oh, is this the level of analysis we're going for? This is very simplistic, basic, entry-level stuff. And then we had, you know, these pragmatic rules of engagement versus moral conflict playing out almost literally with military versus government. And it became a little bit simplistic. And it, the credit sequence is what kind of killed it for me and stopped me yeah. really embracing this film because it it, it really revealed how ham-fisted the focus is on one character. Um, And, you know, the the, the horrible thought that popped up in my mind during this is this film could have been retitled The Girl in the Red Headdress because our whole moral conflict is around this one little girl. And it really annoyed me the film went out of its way to show us that she's actually from a non-fundamentalist family. She is from a well-educated family. Her father wishes education for her. You know, it, it could have been so much more sophisticated if they were talking about any civilian who wasn't a little girl possibly dying in this drone attack for the greater good. I mean, Alan Rickman's character even at one point says, would we be having this debate if it wasn't a little girl? Um, I, I think that that simplicity and that uh, really pulling it, you know, it, it's the child in peril trope, and I think this film milks it horribly, and it just it really takes the edge off what I thought could be some really insightful commentary on on this nature of warfare where there are no good solutions, there are, there are no good alternatives. And I remember that director Gavin Hood, I, many years ago I saw a very early short of his, a short he made in 1998 called The Storekeeper, which I really hated because it's, it was sort of looking at the, the issues of, of, of crime and retribution and the whole film ends with a child getting accidentally killed and it's the big kind of moral resolution as, this is why conflict is bad, children die. And I remember seeing that film and thinking... What a what a lazy, manipulative, exploitive way to make your point. And it comes back into this film with a vengeance.
0: Hood also made a film called Sotzi. It was actually, he was actually on the DVD
1: for Sotzi, this yeah, short he, film. He
0: got the um, best non-English language Oscar for that, I think, in 2005. I really like Sotzi. He's a South African director. It's
1: his best work by a mile. Um,
0: And I think that film, I'll, I'll come back to this shortly, but I think that film also relies on a child as a moral kind of cipher. But in a really complex way. Yes. Um, and I, th- I think that's an extraordinary film and I'll kind of go a great distance for him based on the back of that one film. And I think the fact that he's a South African director is of note. Um, I come from a really different perspective to this because I've already seen Good Kill, um, the 2014 Andrew Nichol film, Hidigatika... But oh, it's uh, Andrew Nickel as
1: well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, it's it just is... Stephen Hawking you mentioned. Yeah. yeah Andrew I... Nichol's fallen right off the radar, hasn't he? Oh, wow.
0: With good reason. With reasons. good reason, yeah. Um Good Good Kill. I, 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 Eye in the Sky is the film that I had hoped that something like Good Kill... I mean, we need to have more movies about drone strikes. This is something... I mean, every time I'm on social media, it's like, you know, oh, look, 150 civilians killed by a drone strike. Um, But Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer, lol. You know, it's insane. We need to get more of a discourse of this going. And films are a good way to get this stuff talked about. So that there's really only two big films that I... I mean, maybe there are other, but these are the only two big films that I can think of that have actually dealt with this subject. Um, Eye in the Sky is leaps and bounds in terms of its politics beyond good kill. Good kill is only set in Las Vegas. So we have... um, uh, Eye in the Sky said in a whole bunch of different locations, and it's all concerning uh, a strike in Kenya. Um, Good Kill is only sent in Las Vegas at a military base. It follows Ethan Hawke and his downward spiral. And I, I don't mean to be dismissive of post traumatic sp- stress and what it must be like for, for drone pilots. If that is a drone pilot the correct yeah, drone, I think that's fair enough, drone yeah. operators? Is that the correct terminology? In this film they refer to them as pilots, yeah. Yeah, um, and we have two characters in either side mm. who are drone pilots, but this focuses on Ethan Hawke's character, who is that, and it's about the collapse of his marriage, his spiral into alcoholism, his kind of ethical issues with doing this. And, and at one point there's a kind of speech that he gives, it's almost like, I'm a pilot, but I don't even ply aeroplanes anymore. I am a bird who's had its wings clipped. And it's like, you know what? When you're talking about drone strikes, I'm thinking that, I mean, I do feel that, that PTSD in this situation for pilots must be an issue and I don't mean to dismiss that as I said, but I think there may be other victims we could think about here there is not one shot in good kill on the ground, not one it's it's 100% shot from the perspective of the soldiers uh, of, the, of the pilots, so Eye in the Sky was actually brought, like a relief for me after the politics of, um, of good kill good kill was a horrendous experience for me, it made me not just upset but really felt quite icky um, and there is there is some attempt at some... I mean, I thought Eye in the Sky, for me, in a funny way, and we'll get to this shortly, like Sherpa, I thought they were a really good blend because their film about colonialism. Um, a colonial, Literally, in, in Eye in the Sky, it's a colonial gaze. So it's this sort of American versus uh, British gaze. And I think coming from a South African director, I thought there was interesting stuff going on there i i agree with you thomas that i thought i actually thought that the genre stuff the thriller stuff was quite tight i thought that it moved quite tightly um but one i mean i know that i've talked about this on the show before i have massive issues with this really simplified children as a moral cipher thing we talked about it when we did 71 last year and i think that i think there's a lot of really sophisticated stuff going on in eye in the sky in terms of it certainly compared to something like good kill um in terms of its politics that didn't Bothered I guess because I was my point of comparison was yeah. really the lowest common denominator. So this was really a step up. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just thought with all of this kind of interesting stuff going on, Gavin Hood, with Sotzi, again, he's, he has proven that he can use children in an intelligent way. Um, I, I thought it was very... Uh, very weak and very lazy. Actually, I thought, no, you can do better than this. I think that the the actor who played Alia, the little girl, her name's Aisha Takal. Now, the character was nine years old. I don't know how old the actor was. I think she really put in an effort to give a bit of depth to that character. There's also another actor called uh, Bakard Abdi who played Jemma Farah, the Kenyan agent. Yeah, he's on great on the ground. He was fantastic. He had such. Captain Phillips? Captain Phillips. He's the yeah.
1: actor in Captain Phillips, yeah. Um, he, he's a terrific actor. He was really good. Yeah. And I,
0: I I just really appreciated that there was some attempt at some kind of subjectivity of what it must be like, even if it is ham-fisted, at least it was there. See,
2: I felt it for, for, um, for his character, absolutely. Yeah. For, for the girl and the family, it felt so forced and so almost like cardboard cut-out sort of caricatures. Um, but you're right, I think the film is is definitely well-meaning in its politics. Um, I guess my frustration was that it it set the moral dilemma, that it focused the moral conflict on this idea of the one person and as you mentioned drone strikes aren't about Mm. one person collateral damage is 150 plus i mean so it felt like a kind of a a get out of jail it's like well it's like the saving private It's like we're we're going to actually send a military team to you know find one man at the expense of you know entire battalions and platoons and that's just kind of nonsense and that almost feels more like a political fantasy that is trying to almost cover up or over represent the the political reality of drone strikes and that really frustrated me
0: at the same time for me and again i guess i can't i can't really escape eye of the sky without thinking about good kill good kill starts off with basically the a similar scenario that we see set up in eye in the sky but that's 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 before the opening credit sequence. So we already have one strike, whereas this whole film is centred around one strike. So there is a kind of... And like I said, that comparative analysis is perhaps not the only way to approach this film. So my 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 reading of it is kind of slanted, I think, because Good Kill was just such garbage.
1: <laughs> Sounds like there's a reason the rest of us had never heard of Good Kill. Yeah,
0: it's bad. Yeah. Good Kill it's is It's so bad. sad Andrew
1: what's happened Nichols. to Andrew Nichols? Nickel or Nichols? Nickel. Nickel. It's very sad. So in the Sky, yeah, we're saying it's, its heart's in the right place, but it wasn't... I think we were unanimous I'm, on that. I'm like, thank you for trying.
0: Thank you for, yeah, at least I, for trying. I kind of like, agree
1: that with that sentiment, and I, and I yeah. think that there's a lot of interesting issues in there. It just yeah it loses its edge by having such an obvious moral conflict.
0: My, my thing is make better films about drone strikes. Make more... We need to talk about this more.
1: I suspect we'll be seeing them over the the coming years and and decades and beyond. You're listening to Three Triple R. This is Plato's Cave. Three Triple R. The Australian filmmaker Jennifer Peedum and her team were in Nepal making the documentary film Sherpa. It's a docker about the growing tension between the Sherpa people and the predominantly Western tourists and tour operators who have turned climbing Mount Everest into a lucrative business. Now, while there, the filmmakers were completely unexpectedly, of course, on the spot to witness and capture the worst tragedy to have occurred on Everest at the time when an ice avalanche killed 16 Sherpas. The documentary then depicts the fallout between the, f- the various groups involved. Uh, portraying real life tragedy in cinema is always tricky, as we discussed in the last segment, especially when the film uses real footage, as you would expect from a documentary. How do you all think Sherpa does?
3: It's a beautiful film. Uh, with some really grim, um, stupid white people up on a mountain action uh, ruining it for the locals. Uh, That that should
0: have been the tagline. (laughs) That's brilliant. (laughs) Cerise, I've missed you. Uh, That kind of sums it up. (laughs) And on a mountain.
3: (laughs) Later on, Plato's Cave will be... Well, one, uh, one thing the film makes clear at the outset is that uh the sherpas are a people uh they're not a role they're not um they're not a job they are an ethnic group which is not something i'd entirely twigged and i'm a, a kiwi and we're brought up with the great myth of the great edmund hillary having got first to everest uh first to have ascended the summit and that's not really the whole story as i think Probably um, it, most people know, I like to think, but they might have grasped that tenzing Norgay, I think his name was uh, uh, with Sherpa appended to his name, typically uh, he was um, I think actually first to the summit, really, uh, and and this was not recognized because in true colonialist uh, fashion, everyone else was given bigger medals than he was, and uh, this this form suggests ever since there's been a simmering resentment that has only really come to the surface in the last few years, the more that some of the Sherpas have grasped just how perilous their lot in life is, and yet they feel that their options are limited. There are not other ways that they can remotely make uh, the sort of income they can serving the white people who wish to put other white people up on top of the mountain and occasionally some folks of other ethnicities but principally uh white folk and some of whom have some sensitivity to the sherpas uh lot in life and others who are at the very least gratingly insensitive and in one or two instances (laughs) in this film towards the end just uh, made me actually want to get out of my seat and tear up the screen with fury at uh the the gross insensitivity that uh white privilege um, bestows upon some of its uh carriers it's a good film it's um upsetting it's meant to be upsetting um And uh, there's not really a spoiler, I think, to mention that events not depicted in this film but subsequent to them and alluded to them in the closing credits. uh, There was a terrible, terrible earthquake in Nepal uh, subsequent to the action in this film, which devastated great tracts of land and had a, a very considerable toll, death toll, much worse than the mere 16 people to have tragically perished. Uh, in well, the, their main action that this film is concerned with, but on the whole it paints uh, uh, knowing that that and, and seeing what, what uh, befell the, the poor Sherpas in this film it's um, it's really a rather tragic portrait of human stupidity and greed and privilege and white people can just go and take a running jump.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of characters, or oh, characters, there's a couple of things said, like you said, Cerise, at the end of this film that I would very happily see shot from a cannon into the sun. Like, really genuinely shocking things are said um, that that absolutely boggle the mind that a human being could think that well, about Except human the being cannon occurs.
2: would have to be carried by the Sherpas yeah, the up to the Sherpers top would of have to, Everest carry the cannon to, fired, to do the shooting.
0: Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't blame them for doing that with enthusiasm <laughs> at the some of the language that was used in this film. And, I mean, I guess language becomes quite a key factor in some of the, some of the more interesting scenes in this movie. This had a really remarkable effect on me because I think it's a really powerful microhistory. It's like it, 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 it doesn't have ideas above its station. It's not a preachy documentary. And it, you do get this feeling that they're kind of just rolling with this story and then this, this awful thing happens and that the, the documentary itself is trying to grasp what's going on. Um, there's not this sort of voice of god authority documentarian vibe to this film it's very much immersed in the confusion and the drama of the crisis and of the trauma as it's unfolding and i felt that felt that it was a very honest documentary in that that sense i don't know if that's a bit of a weird word to use in terms of documentary film not truthful but it just felt like honest filmmaking yep. in terms of their their mode of engagement i think
1: the film lets the footage and the people in yeah. the footage speak for themselves rather than Heavily pushing. steering you in a direction, uh-huh. yeah.
0: but I mean, this idea of—I mean, it's—it's it's such a—I mean, it's such a powerful film about colonialism and its contemporary manifestation, and I, I just couldn't shake that—the uh, effect that that had on me when I was watching this. And I think that if it went out of its way to—if it was a documentary about contemporary colonialism. I think I would have been less affected. It would feel preachy. And, I mean, there are documentaries about that very stuff. I'm not going to name names because yeah, that would be catty. But there are some films that are much more aggressive and overt that that's what they're talking about. And there was something about, yeah, that this kind of micro history that this film was looking at or this, this sort of small case, not that it's a small event, but this looking at this community and, and how this industry has affected this community, Um just i mean really really effective i think it's an extraordinarily powerful documentary
2: yeah this is a, this is the standout documentary for me this year this, this really yeah, agree with really that. struck a, a, a strong chord and the, the references you made to colonialism i think watching this i was so aware that we it felt like watching the key moment where the colonialist narrative which has been so sort of fundamental to the industry on Everett's post Tenzing Norgay has suddenly reached breaking point and the post-colonial realisation of, of the Sherpas and the, we're not going to take this anymore and how the the predominantly white adventure seekers and, and uh, tourist operators are forced to confront that and the government as well and th- there was a quite a, a clear ethnic distinction between the members of the government who turn up as well which wasn't really discussed or explored by the documentary but I think it was quite implicit at least there and look I think this is a, a really fascinating documentary from that colonialist narrative from the capitalist narrative and how you know this industry this really vill- this town this village has been co-opted by the tourist industry and the way in which it tramples on the sense of the sacredness of everest and i thought that was something which struck a chord in terms of this country and the debates around uluru and uluru as a site for tourism as opposed to the sacred site that has, has such a, a key spiritual value for first nation australians so that was interesting and i I also was possibly the only one to see Everest, the action film that came out last year, was I? Did anyone else happen I to see it. I don't think any I think, I think other human were. being
0: saw it. I think it was just you.
2: Well, <laughs> interestingly enough, I thought Everest was a fairly satisfying action, sort of semi-biopic film. Jason Clarke, Josh Brolin, Jake Gillenhall, John Hawkes, all the Js were in that film and were quite great. But what stood out politically and, and ideologically in terms of that film is its complete abandonment of any Sherpa characters. They were kind of like... They, No way. We didn't even really have a token. There was, again, that sense of the film is, even in 2015, the film is still replaying this colonialist narrative where everything functions around the, the white characters. And there's not even an attempt to acknowledge that there are these other characters who are affected by the events depicted in that tragedy, which I think was from the... from 1996. So this is a a really interesting companion piece slash antidote to the Everest and the ongoing colonialist narrative which we've seen in representation in both fictional and and non-fictional cinema.
1: Look, I thought this was an extraordinary film, like the rest of you. I mean, it also looks stunning. I mean, the cinematography in this is remarkable. The music, and we'll play some in a moment, I think, really creates a sense of awe at this amazing part of the world. Two things that really struck me about it. One was how it, how it uses this small, you know, relatively in, in the grand scheme of the world and history, that uses this, this kind of small example to perfectly encapsulate this whole... Uh, profits over people situation, all these industries all over the world where we don't see the exploitation happening to third world people for, for our comfort and benefit. I mean, th- that incredible metaphor in this film that these adventurers pay lots of money to turn up and hike up Everest, while the Sherpas are doing unbelievable work throughout the night when they're asleep, taking stuff up and down through these extremely dangerous parts of the mountain, while their families are, are literally crying, begging them stop doing this. You know, this is entire people who have abandoned their own means of production. And They used to be farmers, and this is now the industry they, they depend on. I mean, you could extend this to so many things, whether it's producing our clothes, it's our computers. I mean, this is how the world works, and this film is a really great Michael Cosmos of that. I was also really impressed by the amazing integrity of the film. It tells us at the very start there is this incident that's going to happen that you're going to see in this film. It's not a gotcha moment. And the film doesn't build up to this moment. It happens in the middle of the film, and then they show us the fallout, and that's when the structure of this film is so impressive. They tell us each day that's passed, and you start to notice as we get further and further away from the tragedy how people's memories just fade, and it's less about honouring the dead Sherpas, and it's more about... Well, I have paid lots of money to be here, and this is my my vacation and, and you know some people are openly revolting, just like some people are openly revolting about countries that I don't know about other people it's almost this kind of just got sort of condescending patronizing attitude, just just almost willfully not wanting to understand what what they go through yeah this this film kicks a real goal for me
0: what I think is really Packs interesting a bomb, sorry <laughs> inofficial. Plato's Cave Yes, <laughs> still can't believe that's become our thing, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pack a bong for Plato's Cave people. Um, I, what I think is so interesting about that point, Thomas, is that earlier in... Like, we see those distinctions and we see those observations made before the tragedy. There's one character in particular quite early in the film who says something a lot... You know, it's, they're talking about bucket list stuff. I think they actually use the word bucket list, that Everest has become this kind of... Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's an industry. Like a, yeah, and yeah. it's a it's a badge of honor. It's almost like a class thing. Um, and one w- one woman says at the start of the film, you know, I really love the people. I love all the Buddhism and stuff.
1: <gasps> oh, that line! Um, yeah.
0: And it's, yeah. I mean, not not meaning to really deep into but they're this. always smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, and it was, yeah. it, I mean, it's such a perfectly picked quote to have before the tragedy because it really situates. And I think the film is careful to not do it as a goodies versus baddies. It did mm-hmm. show that not. Not all the people who had come to Everest to climb the mountain were like that. Um, But this condescending, you know, like going to a theme park. I mean, it was like somebody talking about Mickey Mouse. Well, there was another film crew there doing an
1: extreme sports type doco, weren't there? There was someone who was going to base jump of Everest. I mean, it's got to the point where, you know, there's actually crowding problems, there's traffic jams in Everest.
0: Well, they were calling it a circus. Like, it did have that real theme park vibe to it.
2: I think integrity is the real is is the perfect word to describe this documentary, mm. and, and for the reasons you've just pointed out, because it doesn't play easy stereotypes. We get a broad cross section of of interviewees in this film. We get some people who are uh, who are critics and commentators about hiking and mountaineering. There are the tour operators. There are the tour participants. There are the Sherpas themselves, and, and I think. The fact that it it doesn't have that authoritarian voice or, or narration to it is so important. And there's just these, it, it lets the camera and the kind of the gaze of the camera let us infer and project our own kind of moral judgments on top of it. And there's one shot that has stuck with me and it's the one where it's the, it's the women from the town who are carrying up these obscene bags, these bags which are like three times the size of their body. And you see them, they're almost the first up to base camp and they drop it off. And then this woman just sort of grabs her back and you get the sense that she's in serious pain and the camera just sort of shifts away and, and, and no one even pays her any attention. And it's like this, that image in its own right, says
3: so much about the industry
2: that we're about to really get a kind of a glimpse into. There's a documentary
3: some years ago, Working Man's Death. Did any of you see that? I think it was the Austrian filmmaker Michael Glavago, if I remember correctly, which uh, featured uh, five or six scenarios of... Appalling working conditions for third world people, uh, like people mining sulfur in active Indones- Indonesian volcanoes or um, taking apart shipwrecked hulks on Pakistani beaches or just in- incredible, nasty, horrifying um Hard Scrabble, barely eking out an existence sort of work and this film is kind of a, a really interesting counterpoint to that because this has all of that for the the sherpa people only uh that extra element of the extremely well-to-do um uh taking advantage of the fact that these other people are risking their lives routinely uh, in order to make a living and um, i think that that would make one hell of an upsetting double bill if ever uh, anyone out there were of a mind to, to put these two films back to back.
0: Thanks for that, Cerise. good. Yeah. We'll keep that in mind if we. Want. Oh,
3: working man's death was one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen. I was it? Several years back, uh, and it, it too was just let a lot of images uh, just speak for themselves. In fact, I don't think that even gave people a voice. It just observed. Uh, third world folk going about their daily life and uh yeah and i I was reminded of that watching sherpa except with that extra level of fury um (laughs) just seeing um folks of my uh, own ethnicity and background perhaps a little more well-to-do than me i am in the arts after all <laughs> but uh, nonetheless yeah yeah we'll
0: go up mount cossey i all right
3: many film
2: critics or filmmakers or uh, <laughs> <laughs> walking up that mountain <laughs>
1: Yeah, but it, it, it is also a beautiful film. I mean, that's the other thing. Yeah. It is It, it, it is absolutely stunning. And yeah. I believe the filmmakers have had some experience doing this kind of filming before, and it really pays off. It's just great to see any Australian film really kick a goal, and, and this one does. Really fantastic team. And that's
2: what makes it cinematic. Like, this is not a film that, I think you know you could just wait for tv this is a film go out and see it in the cinema on the big screen
1: absolutely this is really a must see on the big screen even if the big screen i saw it on was out of focus and a really terrible projection i won't name names but it's, I, I still love this film
0: you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple in melbourne australia
1: We're going to talk about April and the Extraordinary World. This is a French, Belgian, Canadian animated feature based on the graphic novel by Jacques Tardy, a prominent figure in the world of French comics whose clear line style has seen him being frequently compared to Tintin creator Hergé. April and the Extraordinary World is mostly set in Paris in 1941. Uh, it's a world where science never evolved beyond steam-driven technology, and the government is authoritarian and constantly at war. April, voiced by Marion Cotillard, is a teenage girl searching for her parents. Her parents are scientists, and along with most other scientists, they have mysteriously gone missing. Now, given that we mostly only get to see American or Japanese animated films getting released in Australia, what did we all think of this very French production? It is a very French film.
0: I had the honour of seeing this with somebody who grew up in Paris, and what I didn't know is that the double Eiffel Tower thing, which is a really key piece of iconography, I don't know whether you guys know about that, but it's a thing. It's got history, the idea of the two Eiffel Towers. I thought it was just a cutesy thing in this film, but apparently... Um, this person that I saw the film with remembers being a kid and having, like, seeing stuff about two Eiffel Towers. They were going to that... build
1: a, a twin
2: off I Eiffel tower. don't know the
0: story about Hi. it, but I thought that was quite, quite gorgeous. Yeah, like
2: double I... Fellas. But... <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> oh la la. <laughs> this is taking a turn quite suddenly. I, 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 look, I adored this after um, my, my kind of negative Nelly slagging off of Zootopia last week that I, I personally didn't like, where we had that thing where I, I, I like children's films to be for kids and and that that feeling that you have that kind of tacked on adult stuff, like the Godfather stuff that was in Zootopia really bugged me. This film felt like a film for adults and a film for children, but in a really genuine, sincere way. I I just loved that it's a very ordinary people in, as the title says, an extraordinary world. Um, There's a scene where somebody just pees in a bucket, really casually just pees in a bucket, and I thought... We don't see see. Yeah, I need more films where people just happen to casually pee in a bucket. There's something quite grown up about casually. Oh, sorry. There you go. Yeah, the pee bucket. There we go. This is my year. Good start of the year. Alex is is going well. This is my year of peeing in the bucket. Sorry, I I
1: broke your stream of thought
0: there. (laughs) But I thought it was also a lot of. (laughs)
1: A (laughs) little slow on the update there.
0: This is not. This is not going well. This is.
2: This is avril at the
0: I really liked the, um, the animal stuff in this. Like, the Talking cat, I'm cat. sure we'll talk about Darwin. Voiced <laughs> by the wonderful Philippe Catherine, who I believe is a quite popular French singer. Gerard Deputu's son-in-law, nice. too. He's quite a big deal. Catherine, I think he's known as... Um, but I like that there's robot rat spies. If nothing I have said has inspired you, robot rat spies, robot rat spies. Go see a movie because it's got robot rat spies. Evil lizards, there's a whole David Icke reptilian thing. I, I I really like this film.
3: It's a lovely little steampunk fantasia, isn't it? It whistles through at a furious clip through an alternative uh, late 19th, early 20th century history, um, which is all, all good fun and suddenly plants us in this... Uh, slightly different 20th century, where everything is steam and there, are, there is nary a tree, or maybe there are three trees left, I think. And, Isn't there uh, one? Isn't that a thing that there's one tree remaining? I think there's supposed tree. to be two others oh, somewhere. No. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. It doesn't matter. It's all a bit inconsequential. <laughs> but, um, but it's part of the fabric of a, a very uh, solidly imagined world in which, sure, lizards can escape and become... Uh, strange lizard overlordy things eventually uh, mm-hmm. and meanwhile darwin can come down with some terrible illness that talking cat but is invincible so i mean well, it doesn't matter if he's ill or not still that becomes a big deal in the course of the the film uh there's a, a wonderful bumbling french policeman who uh is not exactly easy to sympathise with but not exactly a proper true villain in that sort of hate him sort of, I kind of want him to win because he's kind of inept and that's fun, it's something terribly French about the entire enterprise which is um, uh, it's difficult to entirely put my finger on but it does have a very different sensibility to even occasionally we might get the odd english animated feature here Though, i having said that i'm struggling to cast my mind back to the last one that would have made its way into cinema so probably wallace and gromit or oh yes you know, just
0: on the, the sheep last year yeah. yeah, yes. yes. beautiful
3: yes yeah that was a lot of fun yeah yeah
0: um it
2: totally but, it is it is very french and i was trying yeah. to sort of put my finger on i think it's the strange mix of camp slapstick and quite well, given the context of the presumed audience, fairly sort of sophisticated political imagining all within the kind of one film. That feels, to me, sort of distinctively French in terms of its characteristics. But totally or stylistically, this film feels a strange mix between Studio Ghibli and Hergé because you get all the sense of the environmental themes, the use of technology and all those contraptions which we see within this film really reminded me of that, particularly when it moves into the, sort of the jungle sequences in the in the latter stages of the film. And I thought that fusion of sensibilities, even if it wasn't intentional, really worked for
1: me. I, I think r- there was a bit of an influence there. Sorry, Alex.
0: No, I was just going to say, I really liked, like the politic thing, I think is really worth mentioning. I really did like that um, this is what happens when science is stunted. And I think it was quite explicit about that. Um, you know, it's very hard to watch this and not think of climate change and yeah. things like that. But it didn't feel didactic.
1: No that was the point i was going to make actually I'm really yeah sorry right. i
0: came in i doesn't you can matter. actually do a, a mic drop you can do a little i, I, mic I, I can
1: storm out in a huff and throw myself <laughs> on my doona and cry no, in a bucket. but, but I, I really like <laughs> i really like the idea it, yeah it doesn't lecture us but it shows us that when you stop science when you stop thinking and, and creativity and, and progress you get mass industrialization horrible pollution and constant warfare and i think in this current era where we're going through a horrible you know science is getting attacked from all sides there's a bit of a general Anti-intellectualism. We're talking a lot about climate and, and pollution and industrialization It's a lovely film to kind of spring out from that. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bad future film, I think, with some
3: hope. Kind no? of, because it, I think it uh, it does contradict that and it's itself a little in that. Um, while it is a very steam powered uh, alternative, early twentieth century, it's still full of innovation. These machines that whiz about all over the place true. Yeah. are pretty extraordinary, and they're quite reminiscent of. Um, uh, carl zeman 's films we 've screened a whole lot of those at Czech Slovak film festival last year a real steampunk pioneer and there 's that real joy in just the uh, this antediluvian impossible machinery and and these impossible voyages you can embark upon in this these um, flying machines or sort of weird conveyances that could never be and never will be but there is a That's always a struggle with this sort of a thing where it is trying to suggest, yes, we do need science. On the other hand, we're still going to come up with amazing uh, means of getting people from place A to place B. And also... um yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a few things in there that, that don't actually add up if you were to look too hard. At them. I think I hear you saying. Is it the talking
0: cat? Is that what? <laughs> <laughs> was it not realistic? <laughs> the, the cat at
1: one point declares that it is kitten invincible, and that's when I just decided I love this film. It's <laughs> a
0: good cat. It's a nice manger cat. cat.
1: Really good cast. I mean, these are all prominent actors in the Cotillard in front. is wonderful. Codiart is Rochefort. wonderful. And I was about um, to say, I'm
0: just stealing all your thanks <laughs>
1: Yeah, Jean R as as Pops. And he's a he's a wonderful actor and it's just really great to hear his voice on, on, on screen again. And I think partly also what makes it French is Actually, again, similar to Japanese filmmaking, I don't think it differentiates between a child audience and an adult audience yep. the way you do in the US. Like, I think it's just pitched as a fantasy that's fine for kids or adults to enjoy. I mean, some of the some of the moments in this film are quite dark. I mean, there's one sequence where a cable cart filled with innocent people gets blown up and everybody dies, and that's quite a. You see, I couldn't imagine Pixar or DreamWorks doing that. Um, but then there is just those real, little farcical. Joke. Some of the jokes are completely um, slapstick. The Some joke are completely that got me, absurd. which I'm
2: not going to spoil. Which happens, and the catalyst for the joke is a power outage, and I lost it. Yeah, yeah. I'm the power that. outage gag. Yeah, perfectly executed power outage gag. We don't get enough of those in the cinema either. <laughs> or,
0: or peeing in a bucket. Look and learn, filmmakers. Can, I think it's a really joyful film. It is.
1: Yeah, I loved it. I, this is the best animation I've seen oh, probably since Inside Out. I, I think oh, I'd really urge people to check this out. H- having been a bit disillusioned with the yeah, Zootopia and Kung Fu Panda 3, which I think... <laughs> Kung Fu Panda 3, really? Well, the second one was so good. It was, yeah. Yeah, so was, the third one was disappointing, and I don't think we'll be covering it on the show beyond that. <laughs> but we like this one. It's French, and the cat and his kitten invincible. You have been listening to myself, Thomas Caldwell, along with Alexandra, hello, Nicholas, Josh Nelson, and Cerise Howard, Eye in the Sky is on general release through Entertainment One Film. Sherpa is on limited release through Transmission Films. And April and the Extraordinary World is a Cinema Nova exclusive that's released by Studio Canal. We'll all be right back here next week. We're going to look at another batch of films. Uh, Coming up soon, we're going to be doing a special on Suspiria as well. I'm going to give that a shout-out because Alex has just... You've written the whole book on it. You've got a launch coming up. You've got an event. Keep listening. There's going to be more information about that. And if you're a horror fan, you're going to want to listen to Alex's hour-long special on that extraordinary film. Good night.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our
1: website at rrr.org.au.